And so let us hear God's word from 2 Samuel chapter 3, beginning in verse 6. Now it was so, while there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, that Abner was strengthening his hold on the house of Saul. And Saul had a concubine whose name was Ritzpah, the daughter of Aiah. So Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? Then Abner became very angry at the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head that belongs to Judah? Today I show your loyalty to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and have not delivered you into the hand of David. And you charge me today with a fault concerning this woman? May God do so to Abner, and more also, if I do not do for David, as the Lord has sworn to him, to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the, house, the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. And he could not answer Abner another word, because he feared him. Then Abner sent messengers on his behalf to David, saying, Whose is the land? Saying also, Make your covenant with me, and indeed my hand shall be with you to bring all Israel to you. And David said, Good, I will make a covenant with you. But one thing I require of you, you shall not see my face until you first bring Michael, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. So David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife, Michael, whom I betrothed to myself for a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. And Ishbosheth sent and took her from her husband and Paltiel, the son of Laish. <clears throat> then her husband went along with her to Baharim, weeping behind her. So Abner said to him, Go, return. And he returned. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. Amen. <clears throat> well, last time in the uh, first few verses of chapter 3, we saw how God blessed David. While he was king in Hebron, David had several wives, he had several children with several political alliances. And in a way, this did show that Israel's God was blessing the true king, contrary to what happened with Saul or with Ishbosheth. In a way, we could say also that Solomon was blessed even more than David with the hundreds of wives, presumably hundreds of children, and political alliances as well. But on the other hand, David broke God's law. God said the king was not to multiply wives. And how can you be one with multiple people at the same time? So not only does this break the command in Deuteronomy 17, but all the way back to Genesis 2. And so as a consequence, at least in part, three of David's first four sons were notorious sinners, and they were all killed at a very early age, early in life. Well, David is like us all, isn't he? David had aspects of godliness and aspects of ungodliness, and we're the same. This is why we need a better king. We need King Jesus. This is why we need Jesus, period. Because, as we've seen in Romans, there's nothing we can do to make things right with God in and of ourselves. So now, we turn from David to David's rival king, Ishbosheth, or maybe we should say Abner. And note these contrasts. So let's look then at verse 6. 
Now it was so, while there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David, that Abner was strengthening his hold on the house of Saul. And so the two years that Ishbosheth rules as king, um, notice it's Abner who's growing stronger, not Ishbosheth. We see who the true leader of uh, the northern tribes was here at this point. Now, you may remember uh, that I mentioned before with Ishbosheth that it's possible that he did not go into battle with his father and brothers who were killed by the Philistines because he was too young to go to fight. And if that's the case, then Ishbosheth is probably no more than 25 years old at this point. So in some ways it makes sense that this older man, Abner, would be leading the way. Abner, you call, is Saul's cousin, and so it is likely that he was in his 60s or 70s at this point. This older, wiser man, um, you might say, pulled the strings in Ishbosheth's kingdom. He probably made many decisions, and Ishbosheth likely gave him a fair amount of leeway to do that. The elders in Israel also likely looked to Abner and not really Ishbosheth for the various decisions. So you might say that Ishbosheth was more of a figurehead. Abner was the true leader. I think we know a little bit about that in our country, don't we? Okay. <clears throat> there are people behind the scenes calling the shots. Biden is a figurehead at best. So <clears throat> we look then at verse 7. And Saul had a concubine whose name was Ritzpah, the daughter of Aya. So Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why have you gone into my father's concubine? All right. Well, first of all, you recall that a concubine was not a full wife. Yes, they got married in a sense, but they didn't have all the rights and privileges of a full wife. It's kind of like a half wife. And the primary purpose of the concubine was just to have more children. Um, and so uh, Saul had one here uh, in Ritzpah. So the, the question that faces us here in this verse and even into the next verse is, um, did Abner go into her? Actually, um, if so, why, how, what, what's going on here? Uh, did Ishbosheth um, kind of create a problem that wasn't there? How should we understand this? Did he jump to conclusions in order to weaken Abner? Well, when we run across questions like this, of course, there are various opinions that have been held over the centuries and that's no different here. Some have suggested that Abner did take Saul's concubine, and he, in doing so, was proclaiming himself really to be king. He was flaunting his power. Some would say even that this was a coup attempt. Uh, if you turn forward to chapter 21 here just a moment, uh, we see this connection. Now, this is a, a totally different context with the Gibeonites and and Saul and so forth. But notice what it says in verse 8 here, just the first part of the verse. It says, So the king took Armoni and Mephibosheth, the two sons of Ritzpah, the daughter of Aya, whom she bore to Saul. Now, again, it's fitting into a totally different scenario there. But notice that Saul had these two sons. Maybe Mephibosheth or Armoni was the next in line. And maybe Abner's trying to right? Get in to that uh, connection, if you will, in this way. Maybe we should understand him as a hardened soldier who was bullying his way. He didn't love Ritzpah, was just manipulating you, her and using her to advance his own kingdom. 
We, of course, have thousands and thousands of leaders in our country that do the same kind of thing, and many, many tens of thousands around the world, and certainly more throughout history. So this is nothing new. Uh, and so if this is true, Abner's murder, um, as we'll see later, um, may simply be because of God's punishment for this. Well, the other view that people hold is that um, we should see Ishbosheth as the problem here. We saw in chapter 2 how Abner um, was defending himself in regard to Asahel. The author was going out of his way to defend uh, Abner in this way. Um, he explains how Abner is going to unite Israel under David. And when he is murdered, you see that he is unarmed, he is unaware, it's Joab who is the problem. So because of this, the suggestion is that Ishbosheth used this relationship to oust Abner because he was too big for Ishbosheth to handle. And if this is true, then it suggests that Saul's cousin Abner may have been caring and providing for a widow his cousin's widow and children. <clears throat> so that may be the case. Abner, obviously, and understandably, would then get very upset. Like David's actions were misunderstood, so his actions may have been misunderstood. Well, there's yet another view, and uh, it goes something like this. <clears throat> Abner did this to get rid of Ishbosheth and to save himself. Um, you know, this verse and the next verse, and even the following, doesn't clearly say that Abner went into the woman. Ishbosheth says it, but doesn't say he actually did. And so it may be that he, can you say, pretended to do so in order to get rid of this weak king. Now, it's quite understandable. Here you have. Uh, David being successful, right? Abner's on the front lines. David's winning everything, right? We saw an example of that uh, in chapter 2. And as we talked about last time, David marries uh, into the family of the king of Geshur, you might say, this political alliance, and they were north of Ishbosheth and Abner. And so they were surrounded. Abner certainly, surely knew how weak Ishbosheth was. And so he does this simply to save his own skin. He's not concerned about the woman. He's not trying to become king. He's just trying to save himself and eventually become part of David's success. So you might say he's playing his cards to his own advantage. So there are varying opinions here on how to handle this, and I'm not sure we have enough in the text to make it clear as to which one it is. But I hold to this last one. Um, if I were to make a commitment on anything, I think this one makes the most sense. I think we see enough in Abner to say he is not a righteous man. I think we, um, it goes too far to say that Abner is just this vicious bully. Uh, I think it's more likely he's just trying to get ahead. Okay. And so, yes, there is some uncertainty but well, the aftermath is clear, and the aftermath is what we see here next. So in verse 8, Then Abner became very angry at the words of Ishbosheth and said, Am I a dog's head that belongs to Judah? 
Today I show you loyalty to the house of Saul, your father, to his brothers and to his friends, and have not delivered you into the hand of David. And you charge me today with a fault concerning this woman. Now again, as you look at those words, he doesn't admit to anything there, though it's possible to read it in any one of these ways. But what is clear is that um, Abner is upset. Now maybe it's a genuine uh, upset. Maybe it's an insincere upset, and he's just playing it up. Uh, but simply says, look, for all that I have done for you, all that I've done for my cousin Saul and his family, you're rebuking me for this? The language here of a dog, of course, we need to remember we're not talking about our pet, man's best friend. When they would talk about a dog, they meant uh, an awful thing. Today, we might think of a wild dog or some of the coyotes that are out in the woods or something to that effect. <clears throat> he is basically saying, you're calling me a contemptible traitor. So in verse 9, he continues, May God do so to Abner and more also, if I do not do for David, as the Lord has sworn to him. I'll pause mid-sentence here. Notice that Abner now is uh, swearing to God, swearing that he will do all he can to help David. And he, in fact, puts a curse upon himself if he does not succeed. Okay. <clears throat> now, do you see what we are taught here in this verse and even into the next one? Okay. <clears throat> By this time, basically everybody knows that David is supposed to be king over all Israel. Everybody knows it. We'll see it even more in the next section. Okay. <clears throat> now, we've been aware of this all the way back to 1 Samuel chapter 13 when God first said somebody other than your son will rule Saul because of your sin. We saw it again in chapter 15 and then of course David was anointed in chapter 16. We've known it for a long time but the Israelites didn't. A few knew it at first and over time more and more did. Abner clearly knows. We saw before the end Saul knew and so uh, certainly word had spread. All right, now in verse 10, we continue the sentence to transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul and set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah from Dan to Beersheba. All right, simply, Abner is going to end the house of Saul. Remember, they were cousins. This is a big deal. He's going to end the house of Saul and establish the house of David. And David would not merely rule over Hebron and Judah, but now over all of Israel. Now, Dan to Beersheba. Dan was one of the farthest places to the north in Israel. Beersheba, one of the farthest places to the south. Uh, it'd be kind of like us saying from New York to L.A. Um, there are places further east than New York City. There are places further west, uh, like Seattle or San Francisco, compared to L.A. But still, we right east to west, the whole United States is what we have in mind, and that's what is meant here, all of Israel. So Abner is simply telling Ishbosheth that he's defecting, and he's going to go and help David. So verse 11, and he could not answer Abner another word because he feared him. If Ishbosheth was trying to put Abner in his place, it didn't work. He's afraid of him. He has nothing to say. He knew he could not stop Abner. His biggest supporter is now gone. 
All right. Well, the facts and figures of these verses are pretty straightforward. We do have the question of what exactly happened with Rizpah and so on. But the overall point is pretty clear. And the first and main point is that David is successful again. David didn't have anything to do with this. He doesn't even know anything about it yet. But nevertheless, you see, David is being successful, and Ishbosheth is losing again. God is on David's side. God is against Ishbosheth, like God was against Saul, and on David's side in those uh, 15 years since David was anointed until Saul died. Now, just because God is on David's side doesn't mean there aren't any problems. It took seven and a half years until he was anointed in Jerusalem. There were wars, civil wars. There was the death of David's nephew, Asahel, plus all the troubles he had with Saul before all of this. But nevertheless, God is with David. And the same is true for us. God is with his people at all times and places, including us today. God is on our side if we're one of his people. He protects us. He guides us. He helps us. Now, that does not mean there won't be hardships. Sometimes there are terrible hardships. David ran for his life for uh, probably at minimum three years, maybe as many as ten God is with us, but it isn't always in the ways that we expect. And sometimes it's not even in the ways we want. We don't want our children to have cancer. We don't want our loved ones to die. We don't want other hard things to happen in our lives. But just because they do does not mean that God is not with us. He is. And that is what gives us confidence. And in this case... David doesn't even know what's going on yet. And yet God is still with David, even in this way. Okay. The wicked may prosper for a time, but God is still with his people. We still have that confidence and hope. All right, now, another point that we see is this. <clears throat> um, I made mention of this here just a moment ago. Everybody knows that God is with David. Everybody knows that God had anointed David and set him apart to be king. Abner knows it, and as we'll see in the next section, so did everybody else. But the problem was, of course, is that Saul and Abner and Ishbosheth and others refused to obey. Here, Abner initially was loyal to Saul, loyal to Saul's son, to Saul's family. He finally comes to his senses, but it appears only because he sees it's, you know, the end of the line for him if he stays with Ishbosheth. There is a right way to obey God. There is a right way to do the things that God wants. And simply it means to be loyal to him, just to do whatever he says. Saul had refused to do that since 1 Samuel 13. And again, in chapter 15, and on and on and on, we saw it until finally he died. Loyalty to God must triumph over loyalty to any other thing that we have here in this life, whether it's family, whether it's our boss, our political leaders, you name it. Our loyalty to God must be paramount 
must drive us in all that we do. Abner may have saw, seen the light here eventually. <laughs> At the very least, he sees enough of the light <laughs> for his own selfish benefit. Um, but do you see how God's bringing about his promises? The first point was David didn't even realize it. And here now with this point, you have all these people trying to work against God, work against his promises, his commands, and his anointed one, David. And yet, God's bringing it about anyway. Okay. <clears throat> and so, when we're talking about two rival kings, when we're talking about, if you will, two rival political systems, okay, our loyalty to God must dominate. And we have the confidence that when we are siding with God, so to speak, he's going to bring about blessings for his people. It may mean that we'll be part of the martyrs that are uh, under the altar crying out to God, when is he going to make things right? It may be far better things than that and not so harsh. But when we are seeking to serve the Lord and loyal to him, he will bring about good, even when people are intentionally ignoring God. Again, you see David's benefit through this. And so that leads me to the next idea and to reiterate some of what I said. Abner, in my opinion, is just simply being selfish here. And he did not attempt a coup, I don't think. I think politics drove him, not his desire to obey God. It's his personal gain. That's, that's what's on his mind. That's, that's my view, but maybe I'm wrong there. But I think it fits the text anyway. It's not that he loved David. It's not that he loved God even. But you know, this is not unusual, of course. You remember, for example, in Acts chapter 8, when uh, Philip went uh, to Samaria, and he started witnessing, and people came to faith. You remember Simon the sorcerer came to faith, too. He even says he was baptized. He believed. And then you remember also that uh, Peter and John came to Samaria from Jerusalem to basically see what was going on. And they came, they laid on hands, the spirit came down, and all kinds of amazing things happened. And Simon said, hey, I want that too. And right, he tried to pay for it, and Peter rebukes him. And he basically says, you're not a believer. You were just trying to do things for your own gain. It's basically what Peter tells him. And so Simon the sorcerer and Abner, Saul's cousin, appear to be in the same category of, pe of people. Do you see the challenge for ourself here? Just because we go through the motions, just because we say the right things, like Abner says and will say in the next, uh, in verses 17 and following, it uh, doesn't mean we really love God and want to do what he wants, like Simon the sorcerer. Anytime we use our profession of faith in Jesus to impress somebody, or like we saw this past week, to get votes, okay, or advance our own agenda, and we're acting certainly like Simon and probably like Abner too. And so God wants sincerity but God still can use insincerity for his own purposes. He did it with Judas, and he does it here, it appears, with Abner. 
And so let us be sincere in our faith. All right, well, let's continue to see some of God's overruling of this sinful uh, the sinful actions here. So in verses 12 to 16, we have our next subsection. And in verse 12, it begins and says, Then Abner sent messengers on his behalf to David, saying, Whose is the land? Saying also, Make your covenant with me, and indeed my hand shall be with you to bring all Israel to you. All right. <clears throat> We turn now from Abner speaking to Ishbosheth to Abner now speaking to David. But notice he sends messengers to do it here, first of all, probably because he's unsure of how David would respond. Um, and so Abner is protecting himself. In light of what happened with Asahel, maybe this is what's in his mind. But he doesn't go himself, at least not initially. He sends messengers. Now, we also are a bit unsure how to handle things, and that is, in particular, the question that he, he asks here. Whose is the land? What does that mean? Is Abner boasting, basically, I control all of Israel, and, and, except for Judah, of course, and, and I have the authority to give it to David? Is that what he is saying when he says, whose is the land? Or is Abner acknowledging that David has the right to all the land because God had chosen David? I think both are true in one way or another. But as you look at his further response, right, make your covenant with me, indeed my hand shall be with you to bring all Israel to you, that seems to favor the first view, doesn't it? That here he's thinking, I'm actually in control, not Ishbosheth, and so <laughs> I have the authority and the ability to give you the land, David. And so I'm inclined to go in that direction. I think that makes most sense. Um, and so he calls on David to make a covenant. Make a covenant with me, he says. And I will make sure the rest of Israel will join you. And so here Abner, again, is the true leader of these northern tribes. All right, so verse 13. And David said, good, I will make a covenant with you. But one thing I require of you, you shall not see my face unless you first bring Michael, Saul's daughter, when you come to see my face. All right, his first response, hey, even in the Hebrew, it's just right there. Good. There's not going to be bloodshed in this way, right? You see this diplomatic solution. This is a good thing. No more brothers fighting and killing each other. This is good. And David is even emphatic here. He says, I, I will make this covenant. And so there's no hesitation on David's part. He is very excited in this way. But he does have this condition. You cannot see me unless you bring Michael. Now, you remember the story back in Genesis when uh, uh, Jacob sent his sons uh, to Egypt to get some grain. And they come before Joseph, and they don't know that, right? And Joseph asks all the questions and so on. And, and he asks about Benjamin, and he says, Look, you won't see my face again unless you bring your brother with you. It's the same kind of idea here in this case. David is saying, You will not be able to talk to me. I, we won't really cut this covenant completely unless Michael is alone. David wants his first wife back. Surely, you would, can't imagine why he wouldn't know at this point that Saul had given her 
to somebody else. And so David wants her back. Let's turn back here a moment to 1 Samuel chapter 18 and just refresh our memory a little bit on uh, what happened here. All right, you remember in chapter 17, this is when David is fighting with Goliath. And you remember how Saul had promised a number of things to the person who would kill Goliath. Well, one of those things was his daughter. So if you look at chapter 18, then verse 17, it says, And Saul said to David, Here is my older daughter Merab. I will give her to you as a wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul thought, Let my hand not be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. And so initially, it was going to be Merab, but notice that Saul is not keeping his promise. David already met the condition, but now Saul wants him to fight some more, thinking maybe the Philistines will finish him off, because remember, Saul was now jealous of David at this point. All right, well, initially, you see in verses 18 and following here, you know, who am I and so forth, and they weren't, uh, David wasn't so sure. But when it came time, note verse 19, um, that Merab, Saul's daughter, would have been given to David, but she was given to Adriel as a wife. Now, just briefly to remind you that David killed Goliath probably when he was about 18 years of age. They didn't marry that early, typically. And so when it became time to marry Merab, okay, she had been given to somebody else. So whether it was a couple years or four or five years or whatever it was, uh, she was already given to somebody else. So then verse 20, now Michael, Saul's daughter, loved David. And so Saul finds out and he sets it all up and so on and so forth. But note again, his trickery, he says, well, you can have her as long as you kill 100 Philistines and bring their foreskins and so on. And David says, hey, great. And he goes and gets 200 of them. So uh, remember the background of this story. And so the end of verse 27, and Saul gave him Michael, his daughter, as a wife. And in verse 28, Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michael, Saul's daughter, loved him. Loved him. All right, now in chapter 19, um, let's pick up in verse 11 here a moment. Uh, Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him and to kill him in the morning. And Michael, David's wife, told him, saying, If you do not save your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michael let David down through a window and he went and fled and escaped. And Michael tries to cover for him and so forth, right? So David does flee and uh, gets away. And if you turn over to chapter 25 here in 1 Samuel, remember verse 44. This is after saying about David marrying Ahinoam and Abigail. And in verse 44 it says, But Saul had given Michael's daughter, David's wife, to Palti, the son of Laish, who was from Galim. All right, so just a brief refresher on some of the background here with David and Michael. When David insists on this condition for the covenant, he has every right to ask for Michael to be returned to him. Their separation was not due to divorce. It wasn't due to David's abandonment, though he did leave her, but that was because he had no other choice. It'd be kind of like the same scenario of a um, person from Palestine receiving a wife from Israel who had been stolen by Hamas. 
Saul stole Michael from David. A Hamas soldier stealing a woman and giving her to a Philistine, or uh, <laughs> I should say a Palestinian, uh, and marrying her would really be no different. Now, I had that little slip because remember that Palestine comes from the word from Philistine, so it helps to explain all the problems over there. Um, add to this that in, in the ancient world, there were laws that did govern this. When you had uh, nations come in and, and conquer another and, and a wife would be stolen and taken into the harem of the king or something like that, if that, that woman was recovered, okay, she could legally go back to her husband and so forth and, and, and so on. And, and so David is not asking for anything unusual in this way. Notice how David also would be bringing to attention, to everyone's attention, that he had already made a political alliance with Saul and Saul's family. Abner shouldn't have to do this. There already was this agreement in place. David should have Saul's family on his side due to his marriage to the former king's daughter. And so David is being a bit shrewd here, you might say, not merely wanting his wife back, but saying, uh, we shouldn't be fighting. We shouldn't be doing this. This is not right. Saul did me wrong, and Ishbosheth, and even Abner. Now notice then, as we see here, that um, in verse 14, David then addresses Ishbosheth directly. So David sent messengers to Ishbosheth, Saul's son, saying, Give me my wife Michael, whom I betrothed to myself. For a hundred foreskins of the Philistines. Okay. He doesn't, if you will, rely on Abner to do this for him. He goes directly to the king. Notice he too sends messengers, probably because he doesn't quite trust anyone up there yet. Um, maybe not even Abner at this point. Uh, but he commands Ishbosheth to return his sister, right? Ishbosheth. And Michael would have been siblings, at least half siblings, and return her to their right to her rightful husband. He references what we looked at there with a hundred Philistines being killed. I kept my word. I, I deserve to have her back. You have no right to refuse. And so again, David really is openly saying Saul did wrongly. So verse 15 then, And Ishbosheth sent and took, from, took her from her husband, from Paltiel, <coughs> the son of Laish. All right, Ishbosheth obeys. Now we just looked at 1 Samuel 25, <coughs> and you may notice that there it says Palti, here it says Paltiel, same guy. I just left the L off the end for some reason. And so in verse 16, Then her husband went along with her to Bacharim, weeping behind her. So Abner said to him, go, return, and he returned. All right, obviously an emotional scene here. Uh, let's uh, look at our map here just a moment. Um, if you have one with the land of the 12 tribes here, either mine or another, uh, remember that Ishbosheth is in Machanaim, along the Javik River, the east side of the Jordan there. And... Uh, Abner would have been with him. We're not totally sure where Paltiel was. But Bacharim, 
If you look at Benjamin, and you see where Jerusalem is, okay, about a mile and a half to the east of Jerusalem is Bacharim. And so does this mean they picked up Michael somewhere in Benjamin? Remember, that's where uh, Saul's headquarters was in Benjamin there at Gibeah. So it's possible. Uh, maybe they took Michael from Machanaim, and maybe Paltiel's weeping and crying that whole distance for whatever, a few days for them to travel from Machanaim uh, even to Baharim. Um, we don't know for sure, but maybe he did cross the Jordan with them. In chapter 16, we're going to see uh, when David is escaping from Absalom, uh, that when they come to Bacharim, Shimei, who's from Saul's family, starts cursing David. So at least there are connections with Saul's family in this area. And so it's possible this is where Michael and Paltiel were living. Uh, but whatever the case, he starts following after his wife, Paltiel. And you can imagine this. You can even empathize with him to some degree. But I don't think there's any reason for us to believe that Paltiel did not know that Michael belonged to David. If he was going to object, he should have objected however many years before. He should have said, Saul, no, this is not right. Didn't do that. So when this happens here, he really has himself to blame. In essence, he had stolen David's wife. So he can't feel too bad for him. He got what he deserved. Well, finally, Abner said, enough. Go home. Be quiet. And he did. All right. Well, what do we learn here in this section? <clears throat> well, back to our main points. Ishbosheth is losing, isn't he? Same theme that we've seen since chapter 2. David's growing stronger, isn't he? His wife is returning. The initial political alliance is being reestablished. Abner is siding with David, is listening to David here in this condition. Even Ishbosheth is doing what David wants. And so you see all these positive things of David growing stronger and Ishbosheth growing weaker. And so David's claim to the throne over all of Israel is becoming more and more obvious. And it's about to happen. Okay. And so God is strengthening David. Okay. Same point for ourselves. We may not be king of a nation. We may not have multiple wives and one stolen from us. But God is with his people. And God will bring about blessings for us, maybe in totally different ways. But we have the same promise, the same assurances that God is on our side. God is gracious to his people. You see also this point. Do you see God's grace to Israel? The wars are done. The civil war is over. And so you have here then an agreement without any more shed blood. This dis diplomatic solution is far better than warfare among the extended family. There were no more killings. Yes, you have Joab, you have Ishbosheth, 
You have those scenarios, that's true, but as a whole, the fighting is now over. And this is always a blessing when peace is made. So, again, we may not be leaders of a country. We may not be fighting in a civil war or anything like that. But when God brings peace in our relationships and, there, and the fighting can be over, it is such a blessing. And so when we think about our churches where people fight sometimes over very significant things, sometimes over very unimportant things, when God brings about peace, this is such an encouragement. Same can be said for families. Okay? We all probably have experienced someone in our extended family that just, you know, it's, it's just hard. Okay? There's, there are battles all the time. When God brings about peace, this is such a blessing. Certainly it's true on the national level. It can be true with our neighbors or their co-workers, and on and on we go. God is showing grace to his people. We certainly can pray for that for ourselves too. Now lastly then, let me just make mention briefly of this point. <clears throat> David is restored to his wife, to Michael. Hey, surely it would have been emotional not only for Paltiel, but imagine what Michael's going through. She loved David. David, this is his first wife. Surely there was this extra attachment to her. It likely was an emotional scene when they came back together. Okay. Again, think of an Israelite woman who was stolen by Hamas being restored to her husband. Something to that effect. Saul's sin had harmed Michael. Saul's sin had harmed David and even Paltiel. And here now, Michael is back home. If you look at chapter 6 here, just a moment, and uh, verse 23, I believe I called your attention to this uh, one other time here. Uh, recently in verse 23 it says therefore Michael the daughter of Saul had no children to the day of her death Um, there are questions as to how to take this does this mean she didn't have any more children from this point on because of what happened with the ark and David dancing does it mean she had no children period the end with David with Paltiel or with David again Uh, there's some questions in that way I'm inclined to think that we should just read it as it sounds. She didn't have any children at all her whole life. And part of that, you would think, is because David did not go into her after he brought her home. She was defiled by Paltiel, and so David did not have relations with her. You might say he kept her pure in this way, and even blessed her in this way. Sin has harmful consequences. And certainly that is true here. But God is bringing some good out of it here with David and Michael. But sometimes those consequences happen until we die. And it appears that that's at least part of what's going on with Michael. And So anyway, a final thought in that way. As always, we wish the text said more, but uh, here are a few, um, uh, if you will, uh, informed guesses. 
All right, well, we'll stop with this here tonight and pick up with the story. Lord willing, next time, let's pray together. Our Father and God, we thank you again for your word. We thank you for the stories that you give us to make uh, the principles and truths and um, doctrines come alive, as it were. And we are thankful to uh, see this biblical truth that you are with your people. You care for us. You help us. Protect us. This isn't just some abstract idea. We see it played out here specifically in the life of David and this scenario in Israel. And this gives us uh, such encouragement that um, you're going to do the same with us. Certainly not in the exact same ways, but overall in the same ways. And we thank you, Lord. We are thankful, Lord, that um, you care for us. Uh, We do pray that you bring about peace in our land, that you would stop the civil war that is taking place, at least with words. And we pray, Lord, that you would um, bring about your promises, bring about your, uh, your will for your people, for us. You would help us then to trust in you, knowing that you are working about your good pleasure for your people, even when we don't necessarily know what's happening, like David, at least initially here. We thank you for these things. We are thankful that we can trust in you. We are thankful, Lord, that you uh, bring about restoration and peace and good things uh, because of your grace. And so, Lord, may we rest in this truth and not just have it fill our heads, but to live by it and to, uh, to trust you in all things. And so, Lord, we uh, pray all this then for your honor, for your glory, and uh, that your kingdom would be extended uh, even in us. And we pray all of this then in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat>